Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. We are beginning today a series of speakers. Our first one is Abdu Murray. Abdu uh, was raised as a Muslim. Uh, he was at one time one of the top uh, lawyers or attorneys in this state, if not the country. As time went on, he, in exploring faith, he came to faith in Christ, um, stepped away from his legal profession, and for a number of years now has been um, uh, expounding on the issues of apologetics in the Christian realm. I think he is one of the foremost intellectuals in the Christian uh, realm here, uh, not just in this country, but beyond that. He's an author and uh, an outstanding speaker and a good friend of ours here. We do not invite guests here who are the latest trend or hot topic. We invite guests here who we know their character, we know their lives. They're not just guest speakers, they're also friends of ours as a congregation, as individuals. And so we know the people we have that come to fill this location, this place. So this morning, I'm going to ask you if you please warmly welcome Abdu Murray. Well, thanks again for the, uh, the warm welcome, the generous introduction, and the, um, just the hospitality and the pleasure of being with you all. It's always a pleasure to be at Rock Point. It, um, I've told a lot of folks that I, I have a wonderful home church, um, and if I didn't have that home church, I think this would be a home church for us. Uh, we just love this place so much, and we're just so um, humbled and uh, honored that we get to be here uh, at least once a year, um, so far at least. We'll see how today goes. Um, uh, <laughs> As Randy was um, adjusting upwardly the podium, I was thinking, I hope they adjust downwardly their expectations um, uh, and see how it goes this morning. Uh, What a pleasure it is to be with you all. To kick off this series of uh, some guests and as well, Mickey will be, I think, batting cleanup for all of us. So if there's any heresy along the way, I think you can fix it, Mick. Um, I think you'll be all right. Um, But uh, you'll have Alicia Wood, um, a good friend of mine, who will be speaking next week, then Stuart McAllister, who will be speaking the following week. So you're going to be getting lots of layers of meat and bread. And I, as a Lebanese guy, am sort of the olive you stick at the top of the sandwich. Um, Maybe you'll eat it. Maybe you'll just use it as garnish, who knows, but uh, we'll see what you get out of it today. Um, As I speak about some of the topics I want to talk about today, and really the main topic I want to talk about is uh, the way in which the Christian faith is no longer considered a viable option by so many to some of the ills and some of the ails of the world today. In fact, it's often blamed for the very things I think the Christian message is actually the cure for. Um, I think about something that happened a while back at a debate that um, happened between a guy named Dennis Prager. Dennis Prager is a Christian, not a Christian, sorry, he's a conservative, but he is a Jewish believer uh, in God, but he's not a Christian in any any way, shape, or form. He has a lot of respect for Christianity, but you may have heard about him. He's got a thing called PragerU. He's a very prominent uh, conservative thinker. And he debated a guy, uh, a professor out of Oxford University named Jonathan Glover. 
debated him some years ago uh, about the question, I think the question under debate was, is religion really good for the world? So I'm a debater. I know how debates work, and I know that people don't win debates in their opening statements. They don't win debates in their closing arguments. The place where you win a debate is when there's crossfire between the two opponents. There's a section in almost every debate, if it's done well, where the two opponents get to ask each other questions to test the veracity and the logic of each other's arguments during the opening statement. So you're following me here. There's always a crossfire section of the debates, and that's where the real merits are tested. So in this debate, Dennis Prager asked Professor Glover a question. Remember, the issue was, is religion good for the world? So he asked this question. I'm gonna update it a little bit. This was decades ago. This is before the advent and the ubiquity of cell phones. So please uh, uh, allow me the liberty to change the uh, illustration just a little bit because if you heard it before, you'd say simply in your head, just use your cell phone. Um, so I'm gonna change it a little bit so that I can uh, overcome that little problem. Uh, so here's what he asked. He said, Professor Glover, suppose you were trapped or you found yourself stranded, I should say, not trapped, but stranded in a unfamiliar part of town that you heard is very unsafe, and it's dark, it's midnight, it's dark, and it's stormy, it's raining, and it's coming down in sheets as thick as lead, and you don't know where you are. The car has broken down and won't start. Your cell phone's battery has died. That's my part. Um, so you can't call anybody, and there's no GPS for you to figure out where you are, and there's only a few lights on in the houses surrounding you, so you don't know who to trust. You heard it's unsafe, it's really dark, it's stormy out, and you're in a panic. And you're feeling terribly vulnerable. But then a light comes on at a house nearby, and 10 strongly built young men walk out onto the stoop, and one of them sees you, and he nudges to his friends to, so they can see you too, and they point right at you. As they begin to approach you, and your breath begins to get shallower, and your pulse begins to quicken, would it matter to you if you had found out they just came from a Bible study? The point, of course, there, the rhetorical point, is that of course it would matter. You'd suddenly feel relieved. Because is religion good for the world? Well, if someone came from a Bible study in the middle of that night, you'd be happy about it. Now, it's interesting because that would have worked before. Now, if I had said that in a debate today, and I had a clever opponent, and I had asked him that question, Today, I think he would respond very differently from the way Professor Glover responded. I think he would say, oh yes, it would matter very much if I knew they came from a Bible study because I would be terrified if I was a woman, transgender, black, or gay. That's not fair, but I think we have earned some of that. My point in the illustration is this, is that oftentimes we think that as Christians, the, the message of the gospel is so clearly good that the church has done such clear good in the world that people are waiting for the gospel message when the reality is they're not even asking, is the Bible true anymore? They're now asking, is the Bible moral? And it's the body of Christ sometimes that have helped them to come to a conclusion, no. So we have to face up to this reality. And what it's resulted in is, is, is in a phenomenon that's called deconstruction. Now, deconstruction is not a new thing necessarily. It's just sort of popular now. And with everything we do now, we label everything, so it's got its own little label. And deconstruction is simply in various forms, and I'm gonna go through three different forms today. Basically, deconstruction is the idea that you take that which you had assumed to be true 
and you start to challenge the assumptions. You say, look, I have this fundamental belief, whether it's political or it's social or it's religious, usually religious, that the Bible, I, I believe that you know, the Bible is the word of God, but should I really believe that? So I'm gonna question it. Um, I believe that Jesus is the son of God. Should I really believe that? So I start to question it. I'm gonna, I believe that you know, Jesus died for my sins. Do I even know what that means? And so you begin to question it. And the purpose of deconstruction isn't always just destruction, it's actually to reconstruct. Say, okay, I've assumed these things to be true, but I wanna know if they're actually true. Now, that has happened, but also other forms of deconstruction have happened as well. And people have actually used it to completely jettison their faith 100% and then actually cast aspersions at or give arguments against those who hold on to their faith as wrong-thinking people. Not even just wrong-headed, but also wrong-hearted. And this is where the cultural situation is we find ourselves today. Now, this is not necessarily new. People abandon faith even when they know it to be true all the time or when they suspect it's true all the time. And this has been happening for centuries and centuries and centuries. So let me go to a text I want to explore with you in the Bible, one that actually will talk about this a little bit. It's not commonly used as a uh, illustration or as a mode of seeing the biblical warrant for this thing. Um, typically, this passage is used for other purposes, and those are all valid, but there's some nuggets of truth within the, within the, the corpus of Scripture that I think we begin to see things that speak eternally. They speak eternally in terms of contemporary issues. That which we face today, they faced back then, and the Bible actually explains this and explodes some of these things, even with 2,000-year-old explosions. To quote Leslie Newbigin, the Bible is our eternal contemporary. It applies all the time. So if you have a Bible, and there's no reason you shouldn't because it's probably on your phone, um, let's look at John chapter 6. Now, I am not going to go through every bit of John chapter 6 um, because it's a long chapter and there's some really great things in there. I'm going to summarize parts of it, but I do want to read some rather um, extensive parts of the scriptures uh, to get out of it what I think is important in, in, the, in the Word of God here. So John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, and we're really focusing on verses 1 and 2 to start. <clears throat> it says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now, I want to pause for a moment there. There's two facts that are very, very important for you to notice before this happened. This is setting up the feeding of the 5,000, one of the two miracles where Jesus um, had, had blessed meager offerings uh, and had multiplied them quite a bit. This is the feeding of the 5,000, and this is how it begins. The two facts are these. One, the crowd was large. Two, the reason it was large was because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. In other words, Jesus' following was not limited to 12 people. We often think of disciples as the 12 people, but the reality is when you read scripture, Jesus' disciples had varying levels and various strata. In other words, there was an inner circle uh, of disciples who had followed him around to help him do the work, but his disciples were becoming more and more numerous as time went on. And what qualified as a disciple was different depending on the person. Now, this crowd was very large. And why was it large? Because they had seen the signs he was doing among the sick. In other words, Jesus was healing people left, right, and center, and they saw the miraculous. They had the evidence that Jesus was who he said he was. They had reason to believe that Jesus not only acted with authority, but his actions in authority validated what he said he was doing. So what he said was being validated by what he did. Do you follow so far? The evidence is there. 
They realized this was all a miracle of this man, what he was doing. So then the Passover comes, and they need food. So Jesus performs the miracle by multiplying the bread the, and the fish, this sort of sack lunch, as it were, of this uh, young guy, and he basically multiplies this bread so that 5,000 people plus could eat. It's not just 5,000. We call it the feeding of the 5,000 because that number is in there, but it says 5,000 men besides women and children, so that audience was likely 7,000 or higher than that. Just imagine the number. Imagine the number. I don't know what the seating capacity is in this church, but that's at least seven times the capacity of this church. And he fed all of them. That probably took some time. But it was a miracle nonetheless, and they saw it, and they knew it. They knew he was performing yet another miracle for them. So he'd healed the sick, and now he's feeding the hungry. John chapter 6, verses 14 to 15. When the people saw the sign multiplication of the bread and the fish, that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who was to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the miracle wasn't lost on them about what it was doing. It wasn't just feeding them. It was actually confirming the authority of Jesus and his office. They knew this was the prophet who was to come. This is the one who is coming to usher in the kingdom of God, and they get excited about it. In fact, Jesus knew they were getting so riled up about this that they were going to take him by force, which is hilarious. You force someone to be the one in authority, which is really weird. But they wanted to make him king. They wanted him to be the vanquisher of Rome. And that was not Jesus' intent or his plan, at least not then. That was not the point of his coming. And so he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. He left there. So you get the picture yet, yet more. They saw the signs among the sick, and so they followed him because he was proving that he had authority through evidence. Then when they were sitting down and they were listening to him preach on the Passover, Jesus has compassion on the crowd and he feeds the crowd and they see that sign and now they know he has authority. He, they know he's not just some guy who does some pretty neat things. They know he has the authority that they've been waiting for in the Messiah. But their motivations are still askew. Who they think the Messiah is and who they want him to be is different than who Jesus was saying he was in terms of what it really means to be the Messiah. Now, over the intervening night, you know, he withdraws by himself. Over the inter intervening night, the disciples head out onto the Sea of Galilee, and a storm kicks up, and Jesus walks on water. And there's that whole story in the middle, too, where another miraculous sign had occurred. Now, not everybody saw that, but another miraculous sign occurs. And then <clears throat> the next morning, the crowd that had been fed are still looking for Jesus. Now, likely that crowd had grown, because a miracle like that that tends to spread. I mean, people don't just say, hey, by the way, he fed 5,000 plus people. We should keep that to ourselves. At least one person among the 5,000 told another person. So that crowd likely got much bigger. And they were looking for Jesus, and they basically find him. That crowd was looking over, all over for him. They find him. But Jesus challenges why they were looking for him. Now, that ought to give you pause for a moment as well. I want to think about this for a moment. Jesus has amassed a huge following, and he can do so many things to make sure that that following basically encompasses everybody really quickly. He could feed them again, and he could feed them again, and he could heal them again. Now, in big spectacles, big stadium-like events, he could do this kind of thing all he wanted to. 
and get as many people to follow him. It'd be like us wanting to get as many followers on whatever social media uh, platform you have that you like the most by doing enough spectacular things to make sure people follow you and you go viral. He was literally going viral. Not literally, because that would make you make people sick. You're doing the opposite of that, actually. Um, but he was going viral in the figurative sense. And instead of capitalizing on the virality of his message and his work, Jesus actually challenges people who are coming to him because he's saying, you're coming to me for the wrong reason. He's not interested in the number of followers. He's interested in the sincerity of followers. That's very different than almost everybody of his day and almost everybody of our day. So, chapter 6, verse 25 to 36. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, truly, truly is always an indication that this is the point. You are seeking me not because you saw signs, in other words, not because of the evidence, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, you got stuff. You got your material immediate needs met. But Jesus doesn't say, so be gone from me. He doesn't do that. Notice what he does. Verse 27, he basically says, guys, I've got more for you. I've got better for you than just bread. If you just listen, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. I'm going to give to you guys. You keep on coming and asking me for stuff and material things, but I'm going to give to you something better. I'm promising it to you. For on God, for on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? In other words, it sounds like they're interested, right? They're saying, okay, you're promising us stuff. How do we get it? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. Very, very low bar. It's very easy. So they said to him, and this response is actually comical. Then they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Are you joking? You just gathered around him because you saw the miraculous signs he did among the sick. Then in the middle of the Passover, one of your holiest days, he actually feeds you miraculously. You all see it. You call him the prophet. Then he tells you, by the way, I'm not here to give you material stuff. And now you're going to challenge his authority? I want more parlor tricks before I believe you because it was convenient to believe you. The evidence we had so far led me enough to believe that you're going to give me what I want, food and a freedom from the oppression of Rome. That's what I want. But now you're telling me something different, and so now I need more. The bar has moved. This is happening in our day today as well. I'll get into that in a minute. But that's something important for us to keep in mind. How do I know this? Because the, verse, the very next verse tells me. They want a sign for Jesus to confirm that he has the authority to do and say the things he's doing, and then there's a manipulation happening here. How do I know they want more stuff? Because they use scripture to try to manipulate Jesus into giving them more stuff. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat, physical bread, so give us more bread. That's a manipulation. That is them take, t- taking their preferences and foisting on the truth of what Jesus is actually offering them. 
But then Jesus said to them, truly, truly, again, this is the point, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Then he goes on to describe what that bread from heaven is, for the bread of God is he. It's a person who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus could not be making it more obvious. I'm not talking about yeast and flour baked together. That's not what I'm talking about, and you keep going back to that, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about me. You don't get life because you eat bread. You have life because the author of all life is the bread you need to have in you, and he dwells with you forever and gives you the life that you so desperately need. That's what he's trying to say, but they don't want to hear it. But they said, give, they said, to, said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And then Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. In other words, you're, getting, you're not getting the picture. Your desires are overcoming the truth that's right in front of you. I did all this stuff to prove that I have authority but the, to say what I'm saying, but the minute what I'm saying doesn't line up with what you want, you still need more proof. And you're still trying to manipulate me into getting what you want. That's what's going on here. I think deconstruction, this idea that we can start to challenge the fundamental basis upon, uh, of the things we believe, has a hint of this going on. Not all of it's like this, but there's a hint of it going on as well. So let me go into these three modes of deconstruction. I'll go through some of them rather quickly, but dwell on the third one even more. One form of deconstruction, the first form of it, is simply someone who's saying, look, I've assumed all these things to be true in my life, and I just don't know if they're true. I just assumed them. Maybe they've been challenged by someone to challenge their own assumptions, or maybe they're just growing up and saying, do I really believe these things? Do I really believe that there was a woman named, Adam, uh, a woman named uh, Eve and a man named Adam and they lived in a garden and all these, do I really believe that stuff? So they begin to say, I wonder if that really happened. I get that, totally. I mean, look, my journey of faith <clears throat> started with me trying to knock the faith out of Christians. Now, Christians were sort of low-hanging fruit Back when I was growing up, I grew up around here, and back then, in the 80s and 90s, it was fashionable to say you were a Christian, even if you didn't mean it. Being a cultural Christian was something that was still fashionable. All it meant was you weren't an atheist, but you weren't a Jew, and you weren't a Muslim or a Hindu, you were just a Christian. Christian meant theist. That's all it meant back in the 80s and 90s for most people. How do I know? Because I would ask most people who labeled themselves Christians, why are you a Christian? And they would say, I think we're Presbyterians um, because we go to the Presbyterian church on Christmas and Easter. So I'm a Presbyterian? I'm like, wait, was that a question or was that an answer? I'm not sure which one you just gave me. Um, now, picking on Presbyterians only because, why not? Um, but uh, any, any by the way, any denomination will do. No denomination was immune from the same thing. So it's not a really denominational thing. I just happen to pick on them because I can do it. Um, <clears throat> In other words, they were relying on tradition, things that were assumed to be true, and not really realizing if they were true or not. They just kind of assumed it. So I jumped on that. I would say, wait a minute, you're telling me that you trust the destiny of your eternal soul to a worldview that somebody else has thought through. Have you thought it through? Well, no. Well, I have. Let me, think, let me, let me give you some thoughts I've had, 
and tell you 15 reasons why you're wrong. And I would do that. But it was along the way that there were a couple of guys who started to really sort of challenge me and help me think through some of the reasons I had objections to the Bible. Now, I wanted to knock the faith out of these guys too and replace it with Islam. And so I'm reading the Bible to find all the contradictions in it. I thought there was contradictions. So I'm looking for the contradictions. And I come across a passage in Luke chapter three, verse seven and following, where John the Baptist is telling those who come to him, uh, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? In other words, you're getting baptized because you're worried about your salvation. Who told you to flee from the judgment that is to come to you? And then he says something remarkable. He says, do not even begin to think to yourself, you have Abraham as your father. For I tell you, God is able to raise up children of Abraham from the stones. In other words, your DNA is not important. Your tradition is not important. Truth is what is important. Now, what annoyed me about this was that I was saying the same thing. I was asking Christians, why are you a Christian? They say tradition, I'd say not good enough. And John the Baptist was saying tradition's not good enough. Why that was annoying was this. In all the times I had challenged Christians about why they believed, I never got a challenge back to them, from them saying, well, why do you believe in Islam? Now, I had given them my reasons, I'd given them my 15 reasons why Islam was true, but the fundamental reason hadn't actually been explored, and it took John the Baptist's words to actually get me there. This is the irony, friends, is that I thought this Bible had been corrupted and changed over time, and therefore not fully trustworthy, and yet it was the Bible's words, John the Baptist's words, in a Bible that the Holy Spirit had preserved over 20 centuries that found its way into the hands of a young guy sitting in a chair trying to be as skeptical as possible that got me on the road to deconstruction. That's, uh, actually thinking about my own views and whether or not I assume those are true. Here's my point. The scripture actually speaks very powerfully into people's lives. May you never encounter somebody and speak with lofty arguments in a closed Bible. I was undergoing this as well. Now, I didn't leave Islam because I thought it was false. I embraced Christianity because that proved itself true. But that process was deconstruction for the purpose of reconstruction. That's mode number one. But mode number two is a little different. It's people who actually deconstruct because they want to. Because who knows, for whatever personal reasons they might have, they find the, the, Christian, the Christian faith to be odious or they have some kind of a thing in their, in their mind where they used to be Christians but they've abandoned the whole Christian faith and they're done with it and so they're just like finding reasons to actually let go of it because here's my 15 reasons why. They don't bother to look at the, object, the, the responses to their objections. They just say there's a bunch of objections and I'm okay with that. I ran into a guy some years ago who I was speaking to, young guy, he was um, an atheist. He had come to a Christian camp I was speaking at because his parents kind of dragged him there, but he liked the Euchre tournaments, so that's what he really enjoyed. Uh, and he never had his questions answered. He had asked his questions to his parents, but his parents were more of the, we don't ask questions around here, we just believe kind of people. And he finally found a person who would answer his questions. Now, it's not because I'm great at answering questions. It's just that anybody was answering his questions. He couldn't wait. And so we had conversations over and over again. Uh, so we, we had one conversation, but we kept on going over the same things over and over again. And then we finally got to a point where I asked him, where did you get all this stuff? Where did you get the objections? What books have you read? He says, well, I don't read anything. I'm not really a reader. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, where'd you get your objections from? And I'm not kidding you. He said, 
Comedy Central and YouTube. Like The Daily Show on Comedy Central. These helped him to form these objections. So I said, okay, what have you read on the other side? Or what have you watched on the other side? People who respond to those objections. Well, nothing. So I asked him a question. I said, is it possible that you aren't really looking for answers? You're not trying to see if the Christian faith is true. You're trying to confirm that it's false. Is that a possible motivation? And it's funny because that's kind of what resulted. He did, in fact, see that. And we had a wonderful conversation. And in fact, I saw his parents at a completely separate event. Actually, I saw the dad at a completely separate event a couple of years later. And I said, hey, how's he doing? And he said, you know what? He's doing really well. He's spending time with Christians. He's in church. Uh, he's still asking his questions, but he's getting answers now. And he's really looking for them. Thank you so much. Now, I didn't do anything miraculous except just listen. So there's the second mode of deconstruction. But in that mode, there remains a resistance to the facts even when you have them. And you can look at our text. Look at our text in John chapter 6. The crowds had gathered even before they had done, been fed at the Passover because they saw the signs he did among the sick. They had evidence. Then they saw what he did with the food. They had more evidence. And yet they would not believe because Jesus says some pretty challenging things after that. He basically says that the food you're looking for is really me. And then he gets some very visceral language when he says you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now that is some pretty visceral language, but it's clearly symbolic language. Clearly it is because he had just got done saying, don't look for the physical. Look for the spiritual. And I am the bread of life. This is all metaphorical language, clearly, but because they don't want to believe him, because they have been disappointed by what he has said, they're looking for any reason to disbelieve him, and so they say, this guy is talking all kind of radical nonsense. We need to abandon him. In fact, the text goes on to tell us this in John chapter 6, verses 66 to 69. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him because he didn't tell them what they wanted to hear. You see, they had the facts, they had the truths, and they had their preferences, and their preferences mattered more than the truth. That's a post-truth mindset. We are currently living in a post-truth mindset. There's plenty of evidence of what reality is really like, but we elevate our preferences and our feelings above reality because we want reality to conform to what we want, not conform ourselves to what reality really is. This is not new. This is old. This is 2,000 years old at least. So there's this wonderful little phrase that Simon says in response to something Jesus says. Verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Remember, thousands of people have abandoned Jesus. See, Jesus is not really interested in PR. He doesn't care about the followers. He cares about the sincerity of the followers. He cares not about the number, but the sincerity. And he lets thousands of people walk away. Then he says to the 12, are you going to go too? And then Peter, of all people, answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There are only so many options in the world, and you are by far, obviously, the best one. Peter says, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So much wisdom, 
so much insight, so much depth and truth to what Peter has said now. But the human heart, even in the most committed heart and in the most committed mind, where truth has taken root and is seated deep inside someone, even the most committed heart can set that truth aside and can even abandon that truth when the disappointments and the pain and the hurts of life come about. And that brings me to deconstruction mode number three. This is the most important one because I think this is the most prevalent one. It's when hurt, disappointments, and false narratives cause even the strongest of us to say, is this really worth it? Is this really real? Whether it's people in church who have disappointed you, whether it's clergy, whatever it might be, um, I know something about that. Whether it's people who have just promised something and they haven't lived up to it, whether it's a spouse or a friend or some circumstance, maybe it's medical, who knows, and you're thinking, is God really there? Where is he in the midst of all this? How could I have lost that person, either to a conflict or to some disease? And it all sets in. You know, John the Baptist leapt in his mother's womb when he was in utero, when he was in proximity to Jesus who was also in utero. That's how predestined John the Baptist was to go and preach that Jesus was the one who was to come. That's how convicted he had to be. Even before birth, he was convicted that this is the Messiah. And yet, when he gets thrown in prison, and all the things he thought were gonna happen have not happened yet, he sends his disciples to Jesus and says, and asks Jesus, are you really the one to come, or should we look for another? John the Baptist had doubts. And Jesus didn't say, be gone, my so-called cousin someone who I thought would have stuck with me to the end, be gone. No, he didn't do that. He's gentle of heart and lowly of spirit, and Jesus approaches John in his questions and says, go back and tell John what you see and hear. Go and give him the evidence. The deaf hear, the blind see, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. He doesn't abandon us to our disappointments. He gives us reasons to come back over and over again. In our text, the crowd did that. The crowd just didn't want to hear it. But Jesus didn't say, hey, don't look for stuff. You want stuff, be gone. He implored them to stay. He tried to teach them what it is they were actually missing out on. See, we can have some serious misunderstandings about who Jesus is and what Christianity is all about. And Christians can help us get there, unfortunately. And the world can too, the outside world can, and our circumstances can too. And so we often deconstruct because we don't understand what this is really all about. And there's a cost to pay in that. There's a real cost to pay in that because we have to give up our hurts or realize that maybe we got things wrong. I did that. It took me nine years, friends, nine years to give my life to Christ from when a, the first faithful witness started to happen to me. that it didn't take me nine years because the answers were hard to find. No, it took me nine years because the answers were hard to accept. There was going to be consequences, both wide in terms of relationships and deep in terms of identity. 
I think that's true for all of us. It's true for all of us. Let me finish with this um, illustration. I, I saw a video some time ago by two uh, young ladies. Well, I say young, one was in her 40s, but if you look at the video, you'd never guess she was in her 40s. Um, two women who were successful ladies who, you know, very good-looking people, very erudite, very dynamic people who were talking about their deconversion from Christianity, what they called born-again Christianity. I'm not sure that's a denomination, but that's what they called it. And they were talking about how they had left Christianity because it was so constricting, so enshackling to them that they couldn't break free of some of the strictures of Christianity because one of them, for example, said that she first began to deconstruct her faith when she was teaching Sunday school and she had to teach a bunch of little kids, one little girl caught her eye in particular, that she was inherently sinful and morally filthy. She said, I could not bring myself to teach that to this little girl that somehow you are inherently morally flawed. She couldn't bring herself to teach, to, 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 um, to, uh, teach that to this girl. And that began her whole like, oh my goodness, maybe this whole thing is just a big sham. And the other one, the, the host of the, show, of, the, of the video, was affirming everything she was saying. In fact, the interviewer said, so many people would say, Christianity is wonderful and it's beautiful. To that I would say, then you don't know what Christianity is. The core beliefs of Christianity teach you things that make you feel disgust in others and in yourself for being a natural human being. That's quite the indictment. Her guest found herself suddenly crying as she was trying to teach sin to a little girl, and she was affirming. She's like, yep, that's, that's right, that's right, that's right. This whole teaching is a false narrative about how ugly and, uh, and, and as unlovable you are, and that's not who you are, and you're so much better than that, and all this. So they went on and on. And then the, they said this, Christianity is a strict set of beliefs that revolve around the ideology that you are a sinner, that you need to be saved, and without the grace of God, you are worthy of suffering. That's it. That's what born-again Christianity is. That's pain. That's their word exactly. That's quite the indictment. But you know what it also is? It's quite the half narrative, isn't it? Because yes, it's true. You're a sinner. Yes, do you need any more proof? <laughs> than our own lives? If I, could generate a if I could create a machine that could generate your thoughts on visual form and put them on these two screens and show everybody in this room, how many of you would say, no problem, past 24 hours, totally clean? <laughs> how many of our browser histories would we have a problem with showing? We are sinners. And but for the grace of God, we would never be able to save ourselves. That's true. But you know what they missed? They missed a fundamental reason why there's a gospel in the first place. Do you know why the grace of God exists? Because God is so good and he values you. Amen. Genesis chapter one. The Bible opens with this. Genesis chapter one, verses 26 and 27. You are made in God's image. Jesus reaffirms this when he says in Matthew, Let us did you not read that God created them in the beginning in his image? Male and female, he created them. In his image, he created them. We reflect the divine and so what they are rejecting is only a half-truth. And so the first thing you want to do when you watch this video is get upset, thinking, you people are telling half the story. That's not fair. That's not right. That's, you, you, tell the whole story. But you know what the reality is? And by the way, I want to admit to you, when I first watched this video, that's the first thing that came in my heart. The first thing in my heart was, you're only telling half the truth. 
Tell the whole truth. You know better than that. And then I suddenly realized, what must have happened in the lives of these two young ladies? What kind of a church did they go to where they felt the restrictions and only the shame of their sinful guilt and they failed to see you're made in God's image and that you are so incalculably valuable that the Lord of all creation pays an immeasurable price to be with you for eternity. The reason you have objective value is not because the flotsam and jetsam of the universe says you get to live today or because the social media people give you enough likes or because the beauty pundits say you fit the conformity of what we think is beautiful for this particular moment. That's not why you have value. You have value because you were paid for. You know how valuable something is by what you're willing to pay for it? And the Lord of all creation paid an infinite price to show you you have infinite value. And somehow, they were never told that. And so they reject something because they were led to reject something that isn't true. And so their compassion wells up. And they say things like this at the end. They say, life is good now after they rejected Christianity. And the other one pipes up, life is so good after Christianity. They couldn't be more happy when you watch the video. They couldn't be happier. What a stark contrast to Peter's statement when Peter says, to whom else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. They're saying life is good. Peter is saying life doesn't exist without you. So what, see what happened? They said life is good after Christianity, but is life good after Christ? Because Christ is the bread. And so towards the end of the, of, of the video, they said, now I don't have to live up to all these standards and all these arbitrary rules and restrictions and all that. We can just shine. You can just shine. And they're both saying the word. We can shine now. That's so great. They love this word, shine. They get to shine now. And I remember thinking to myself during this whole thing, what a tragedy. The tragedy isn't that they're happy. The tragedy is that they fail to see something very important. It's because they left the rules and regulations of what they called Christianity so they could just shine not realizing that you bear the image of God, which is the thing that shines brightest about us. But here's the important part, is they left one set of rules and restrictions and shackles for another prison. It's just a secular prison, because the secular world will judge you on, do you say the right things, depending on whatever it is we say is the right thing for this particular moment, and if you tweet the wrong thing, we'll get rid of you. That's a shackle and a standard you can't possibly live up to because it's constantly shifting. Do you look the right way? Do you say, or sorry, do you have the right political views? Do you watch the right things? And all this, these various restrictions. Society is far more restrictive than the gospel and the Bible ever could be because we are fickle. And while the, the Bible standards don't change, societies change whenever the wind changes. What a prison that is, a prison whose walls constantly shift? You can never get out. And so the freedom to shine becomes the obligation to shine without any standards about what it means to shine. That is a prison. And Christ offers us more. So they say, 
Life is good after Christianity. But hear the words now of Barney Adler, who also left Christianity. And he doesn't see it so bright. This is what he says. Through atheism, I have learned to shun these ideas as nothing more than religious superstition. Comfort it may be, but it is only from an imaginary friend. Yet I miss this friend more than words can say. Like an alcoholic looking at a glass of whiskey, I long so much to revive my old habits. I wish to call on God again, to repent, to be made new, but then I wake up to reality. There is no comfort in pain. There is no God to go to. There is no Jesus to bear my afflictions for me. There is only this harsh world, and it gives mercy to no one. God help me. You can just shine. Adler recognized something. There is no shining without the light of the world. Those who have sat in great darkness have seen a great light. For those of us who are struggling with faith, who are seeing that maybe the other side is, is so much better, maybe there's brightness there, can I suggest to you that there is only this harsh world and it gives mercy to no one. We know how to judge, we don't know how to forgive. It's a dark world. And there are those who are trying, but can't get there. I found freedom in Christ when I realized that that which is what I was searching for in every other worldview was only found in the Christian message. I was looking for a God who was incomparably great, the greatest possible being. That's what Islam is all about. Then I realized something. If God is the greatest possible being, then he would be love, which is the greatest possible ethic, in the greatest possible way. Do you see that? It logically follows. But what is the greatest possible way to express love? It's self-sacrifice. And so if you have a worldview where there is no ultimate self-sacrifice and there is no ultimate love, but Christ is the one who ultimately loves us and he's the expression of God's love to us and for us. Romans chapter five, verse eight, for God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were sinners, God-haters, Christ died for us. The greatest possible being, especially in the greatest possible ethic, which is love in the greatest possible way, which is self-sacrifice. Deconstruction got me there, strangely enough. And there are those who are sitting in our pews who are struggling with faith for whatever reason. F.W. Borum, I'm going to say this and then I'll be done. F.W. Borum says this, the fact is that we are too superficial. We glance at a man and at once hang an imaginary label around his neck. We classify him as a Christian or as a heretic or as a skeptic or as a backslider. And we think that settles it. But our work of classification is very much more complicated than we think. We forget that a saint and a skeptic can dwell together in the same skin. Lord, I believe, there you have the saint. Help thou mine unbelief, there you have the skeptic. The prophets love to talk of a time when the wolf should lie down with the lamb, but in many a heart, the wolf and the lamb dwell together even now. Great wickedness and great wistfulness often lodge in the self-same heart. So there are those of us who have doubts, and our truths are helping us through those doubts. But then there are those of us who have doubts because the circumstances are blinding us to the truth. We need to come alongside them. And to borrow once again, and I'll finish with the Dennis Prager illustration, when he says, what if you found yourself in a dark place where the storm is happening? It's unsafe and you don't know who to turn to. Friends, we need to be 
strong people who come out with our light not hidden under a bushel so we can just shine and point them to where they need to go. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your son, the light of the world, that your word is a light unto our feet and a lamp for our paths, that we don't need to just shine in our own strength and then somehow fool ourselves into thinking that our light is bright, but we have the light of Christ in us and that light can shine. We don't always shine as bright as we, brightly as we like and sometimes we shadow things over on purpose. But Lord, may each one of us be a light to a dark world. May those who sat in darkness see a great light. May we point them to the light of the world, Lord. For all who ache, for all who hunger, for all who've prayed, for all who wonder, behold your king, behold Messiah, light of the world. We thank you for that song that says that so beautifully. We thank you for your son who exemplifies it so perfectly. We ask you to let us go forth from here and tell the world so they may believe. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Thank you. This begins what is going to be a four-week journey. I hope that you'll stay with us uh, for the entire journey. And I do have a prayer that I'll be praying for you and for all of us, myself included. You just got served a really big chunk of meat. I hope you chew on that for the rest of the week, that you digest it well, and that it becomes part of your worldview and your ecosystem that is uh, your own life. There'll be those available up front uh, if you'd like to pray and have prayer with someone. Um, I would be available, available for a little bit of time. I know he has an event that he has to slip out to uh, for a few questions or comments, perhaps. Would you stand with me, please? Father, I thank you that we embrace and have the full truth of your gospel and not just portions of it. That while, yes, we are sinners and, yes, we have need of salvation, that you provide that, that we have this image that is within us that intrinsically makes us valuable to you, and that we should also see that value in others, even those who are on the opposite side from the argument from us. So, Lord, I pray that we would walk out in grace and in truth. We commit these things into your hands. I pray your blessing upon Abdu, upon his family, several who are present here this morning. I just pray your blessing upon them, Lord, as a family and as a ministry. We commit all these things into your hands in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. God bless you.